made it. Good. Yes, yes, I'm here. Oh, <laughs> uh, very good. Chris Greer, where are, there you are. All right, I think everybody's here. Uh, Daniel Cornell, are you here? I see um, Raphael is here. Good. Uh, Daniel Cornell, yes? Yep, there you are. I hear you. Great. All right. And I have one that's working on his vocation. <laughs> I see that. That's very good. Future prospect. And this is Lucas too, right? <clears throat> Lucas the third. <laughs> very good. All right. Let's see. Well, we're up to session six already. It's amazing. I don't know. I think it goes very quickly. Very, very quickly. So um, what I did was for a prayer, um, I put this, the Fatima prayer up because uh, we talked about it last week. It uh, came up at, really out of context, but uh, I remember mentioning it and I didn't quote it exactly. But this, um, I'm sure you're all familiar with the uh, message, the story of Fatima. But um, before the Blessed Mother appeared to these children, an angel appeared to them. And they prostrated themselves on the ground. And the angel taught them this prayer. So I thought uh, what we were talking about regarding evangelization, which we're going to talk about more tonight. I think it's, it's a simple prayer. You could bring it to memory. And it's something that we could definitely use. So. As we gather here tonight, we try our best to forget about everything we left behind uh, and everything we'll go back to. And um, we all have a lot going on in our lives, but particularly we want to hold up uh, George and his family with the recent passing of his dad. Um, and uh, we bring you into prayer tonight and we'll keep you in prayer for the days to come. And so as we gather together tonight, um, we thank God for the time together that we have. We thank God for Zoom, <laughs> that we can be together. So let us pray. My God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. And I ask pardon for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love. Amen. I think that's a lovely prayer. I uh, remember when I first heard it during a retreat that it made me want to really read and study this particular book and learn just more about the details of uh, Fatima. Um, I did not know that an angel appeared to the children before the Blessed Mother. I think the angel appeared three times almost to prepare them for this apparition that they would have. So anyway, I offer it to you uh, to use as a short prayer keep it in your mind. So before we get to our topic tonight, which is going to be mission, vision, evangelization, and parish ministry. You know, remember, we started very broad and we keep narrowing it down. So we're um, narrowing into uh, 
to talk about mission and vision. And as you will see, as we go on tonight, vision is born out of mission. And uh, with that, we will include evangelization. But what, before we get into the topic, what I'd just like to ask, is there any uh, comments or questions or thoughts from uh, your reading or last week? or anything that anybody would like to say before we begin. You're a quiet group. Dr. Eisenhower? Yes, Stephen. Hi. 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 Uh, I, have, I have not seen or read this uh, statement, but just a few hours ago, our uh, community's Provost Emeritus, uh, he offered the reflection for us tonight in the oratory, and he was sharing that Pope Francis recently spoke about Vatican II and kind of said, I mean, I'll, I'll put in a nutshell how he, he yeah. put that, uh, you know, you can't really claim to be Catholic today if you don't, say, embrace uh, what the Second Vatican Council said. And our Provost Emeritus was very excited about that because he was at Vatican II and he literally documented it in doc through documentary film, that was his, his, um, that is his, his gift. So that's what he was doing there. Um, uh, Father George Torok is, he'll be 90 years old this year. Oh, wow. But he was, he was really excited to share this with us tonight. And I haven't yeah. seen or heard, but immediately when he said it, I, I thought of our class and mm -hmm. our discussion of, you know, the documents of the church and how important it is for us to all uh, you know, reflect upon them and read them and be aware of them. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so delighted to hear it. Um, you know, and we all know in the church that there is this some, in some cases, somewhat of a division of people who reject Vatican II. We, we have no right to reject it. It's a misunderstanding, in my opinion, of that, what Vatican II is, what it was, and that um, the documents are living documents. That, and they are rooted in tradition at its best. Um, the church was in need of reform and now the renewal continues. So that's, that's terrific. And I know the other thing is like Pope Francis gets a lot of criticism as well. And nobody has a right to do that because Pope Francis is the vicar of Christ on earth. And we need to trust in the, the Holy Spirit um, you know, um, and that his election was that of the Holy Spirit. And so we, uh, we really have to be so careful. But when we hear people say, you know, uh, things against him, it really does upset me very much. So thank you, Stephen. That was beautiful. I loved it. Thank you for making that connection with our class as well. You're Anybody? welcome. You're very welcome. Uh, anybody else want to say something? Yeah, Dean, speaking of Fatima, I don't know if you know retired Bishop Dominic Lagonegra? Um, from New York. Right, he's up in... Uh, yes, uh, I don't know him personally, but I know who he is. Okay, he retired a couple of years ago, and yes. uh, a friend of mine is very good friends with him. Anyway, uh -huh. he attributes him being, being a priest and ultimately a bishop. Mm -hmm. If you open that book, his aunt and uncle were there in October of 1917 when the son did his miracle. In fact, they're in the front row of the photo. So if you look at his crest, 
the top left corner, he's got a blue sky. The top right corner, he's got the sun. And I remember talking to him a couple of years ago, and he knows how to evangelize. Years ago, he was at his parents' house on a Saturday morning in secular clothes, and he got a knock at the front door. It was a couple of Jehovah's. Oh, come on in. Would you like a cup of coffee? Have a piece of cake? And he just let them do their thing, and he hit him with the truth. He said they walked away dumbfounded. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. That's some story that went way back to 1917. Wow. Speaking of Fatima, there's a, a really great movie out just came out about it. I, I thought it was very well done. Yeah, I actually watched it around Christmas time, and I thought it was very well done as well. And the reviews were that it was very, um, you know, um, authentic as well. Yeah, so if those of you who haven't seen it, uh, it's a wonderful way. For me, it was just a way to bring me to, you know, prayer, to sit and uh, meditate with this movie. Excellent. Good. Dr. Eschenauer? Yes. Just let me just ask you a quick question with respect sure. to that. Va- with respect to Vatican II, uh-huh. um, I just I, I I've noticed that especially with the younger priests, there's a renewed interest in pre-Vatican II masses, the Latin Mass, priests to the back. Um, mm-hmm. What is this? Just something where, you know, is this something that you know is a passing kind of fetish or? Is it something that they're getting during their studies or is it just something that they they feel they want to do? Um, Thank you, Anthony, for asking that question. Number one, most importantly, it's not part of their studies to go backwards. Um, We usually every year have a uh, mass celebrated in the extraordinary form because it's permitted and it's for educational purposes um mainly um but you're absolutely right that there are um many not many i I don't want to say many because i see less and less of it now but there are some newly ordained who would reject uh vatican ii particularly in regard to the liturgy now i have an opinion about that um and this is why i feel and also many young people are drawn to uh, mass in Latin, which we call the extraordinary form, because the ordinary form is mass in the vernacular, the Roman, the uh, third edition of the Roman Missal. But right. Pope Benedict XVI gave permission for priests that were well educated and trained in the extraordinary forms, the mass of John the Twenty-Third, to celebrate it in my own parish they celebrate it as well. But this is what I'm getting at. It draws many young people. And my personal opinion, I've always told you when it's my opinion, I'll tell you that, is that they've, they are drawn to that because it is extremely prayerful, um, because their experience of the mass in their own language, specifically English, very often is done very poorly and not prayerful and that's a misunderstanding of the documents on the liturgy uh because as you know i think all of you have been to mass at the seminary um the mass in english can be celebrated very well and very prayerfully but i think that some people have not experienced that so then they're drawn to they're looking for something else 
I myself have gone to mass in the extraordinary form and um, and it's not that I, I don't want to say I'm not a fan, I appreciate it, but I'm not, uh, I am a fan of mass in English. Okay. But what I do notice is the assembly is very different. And I had this conversation with somebody recently and they noticed the same thing, that uh, people are quieter, people are more prayerful. I don't know why that is. Um, but um, I think the most important part of my response to you, Anthony, is that these priests are not trained to go backwards. Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely not. They are trained in the uh, Vatican II all the way because that's the church of today. Yeah, I mean, I, I just remember as a kid, you know, sitting because I'm, you know, pre I'm, I'm, you know, I'm dating yeah. myself, which is fine. No, oh, I'm pre-Vatican too. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, and I just yeah. remember sitting in those masses, and you know, with the, um, you know, with the responses that, you know, we had no idea what we were saying, we had no idea what was going on, and in the parish that I was in, all the old Italian ladies just kind of, you know, sitting there doing the rosary while the mass was going on. Right, you know, which right. was the primary reason why Vatican II developed was to engage people. And again, I think I think it's an allure to, you know, to, you know, to people, especially obviously younger people that didn't go through that, you know, something that is what they what appears to them to be more reverent. But, you know, really isn't if you don't understand the mass and you don't understand, you know, you don't understand anything that's going on in the mass. And, it be, and now it's in another language where you're just kind of like regurgitating stuff that is either in a missile or stuff that you've memorized. It's really not, it's not engaging. It's not, a, it's not a celebration. It's kind of just a, you know, you just sit there and that, that may be your 42 minutes of therapy. Well, it can be engaging um, because no matter what, and I've been to mass in Spanish and my Spanish is, you know, not great. Uh, my Latin is not great. I've studied both. But we always have to remember that no matter what, we are participating in the Paschal Mystery, and that's what we have to do. Uh, no matter if we understand the words or not, we still know that this is an enactment of the um, death and resurrection of our Lord. Um, but I think to your point, Anthony, and I just want to make it clear, it's I think, again, what draws people to it is the reverence because of the lack of reverence on the part of some when they say um, celebrate mass in English. And that's the fault of, with all due respect to the celebrant, because right. I know in my experience that a mass can be extremely reverent and prayerful in English. Right. So that, um, and um, they are certainly trained. And if they look at all their professors, because every day when we have mass, a different professor says mass, and they all are very prayerful and very reverent. So, so that's um, basically a misunderstanding of the individual that might think it's better. Well, the church, we didn't have a reform for the heck of it. We had a reform for a reason. Right, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, there's a wonderful book. Now, I know um, you haven't had lit a liturgy class yet, but Father Ernest uh, will, uh, if you have him in the fall, um, 
there's a book and I, I was glued to it a couple of years ago, but it does a side-by-side -side comparison of the two forms of the liturgy to really show us what, what was missing um, and what was needed. And it's a very interesting uh, scholarly study, but in e the easy read. Um, but there's always this um, back and forth uh, with some people. Um, can you can you can you send me the name of that book? Because I'd be interested. Uh, in... Sure, I I know it's on my shelf right behind me. I think it's called From Advent to Pentecost by Patrick Regan. I'm pretty sure. If I'm wrong, I'll I'll put it on the uh, the course page. But I think that's the name of it. Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Regan R E G A N. Uh, yeah. Yep, that's it. I can see it on my shelf behind me. From Advent to Pentecost. Okay. All right. Great. One, Thank you. One of the things, and that I will mention, and he mentions in the book, not to take us off topic, but we're going to talk later on in the course about liturgical ministry. One of the things he talks about in the extraordinary form, there's no rites of Christian initiation of adults. Oh, right. Okay. Which is uh, uh, one of the gifts of the Second Vatican Council, that the Second Vatican Council restored that right of the church. Didn't invent it, restored it from the ancient church. Okay. So um, we got to pray for that, that there's um, less and less of misunderstanding of, of, of what the church is trying to show us um, in, these, in these beautiful documents Great. that people need to be aware of and Read. So thank you for that. Thank you. Good. Yes, a lot of, go ahead. Who's that? John Trembley. Yes. Hi, John. Um, a lot of the you know traditional Catholics that want the extraordinary form of mass will blame the crashing you know numbers of Catholics or the, the great apostasy on the on Vatican II and the you know the the new form of the mass. Um, all these Vatican II documents that we're reading. You know, of course, you like you said, it, it's a pastoral council. So, mm -hmm. what the heck has happened? We're you know, 50 years later, we don't seem to have been re have reversed the tide yet. No. I appreciate this class because it is kind of talking about the fact that we have to do something, right? Yep. But so, I guess my point is, as I'm reading the books, I'm thinking, holy crap, this job seems so big to do right now. Right? But that, that's the good news. There's always work to do. There's so yeah. much work to do. Uh, you know, I've been I've been doing this professionally since, um, oh my gosh, I was in music ministry professionally uh, in the 70s, uh, educational ministry from the uh, 80s. And, you know, now when I talk about Vatican II, I think it's old news. But for some students that I teach, it's new. It's news, <laughs> you know. Um, so there's a lot of work to do. You're absolutely right. Dr. Yeah. Eschenauer, Dr. Yes, Eschenauer, just just another point on that. I happen to attend uh, the uh, uh, the uh, old form mass, the traditional mass, the extraordinary uh, extraordinary form. Yeah, extraordinary learn, form. learn the language. I, I attended. I attended on a fairly regular basis. Not here generally but where right. I I go in the summer they have they offer it every Sunday and I, I do yeah. enjoy going yeah. and and to, to just two points I want to make one Good. point is 
I think for the most part, the, the, those that I encounter at these masses are not of that certain ilk of person that rejects Vatican II, bad, the, the new mass, the Novos Ordo, bad. I don't find them. I think they're, uh, they're certainly out there by right, all, right. all means. But a lot of these people are just searching for a mass where they feel that they, they are, are really able to participate in, in, in a worship in a, in a more reverent sense, just as you've been saying th uh, this evening. Yeah. Uh, it, it's something, and I know when I attend myself, well, look, I love the, 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 uh, the new mass, uh, the Vatican II mass. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm fine with it, and I love it, and it's wonderful mm -hmm. if celebrated reverently. And exactly, that that that's the key. It is the key, exactly. But when I attend, when I attend the mass in the extraordinary form, uh, I feel like I'm at a, at a deeper sense of worship. Sometimes I, I, feel I a understand. Connection. And, yeah. and, and and I think that the people that are there, unlike the days where you had no choice, that was the mass where you did see many old Italian women sitting there praying the rosary rather than praying uh, along with the mass. Most of the people I think that are there now are, are very in tune to what the mass is, whether they understand Latin or not. Right. Matter. They have the translation. Oh yeah. You know, and I, and I think that it's, it's an incredible experience to draw oneself closer to God. If you're so inclined right. to do so under those circumstances. So I think it's a great thing to have that mass. Mm -hmm as well. Uh, thank you for that. And I'm with you because I go often and um, it, uh, because I in, am very drawn to the way I can pray there and people yes. are chanting the dialogue and everything. But again, you know, it's not that I reject uh, one or the other. I have an appreciation for that. And exactly. again, for educational purposes, it's important. That we, we, we keep that, and that's why Benedict the Sixteenth allowed for it, so that it just doesn't get lost somewhere. But the problem is when people say, no, that's the only way to right. pray, and that's the real mass. That's, non, that's nonsense. Right. We can appreciate um, uh, several forms. Exactly. Yeah, but I think the key issue is, is that the... Uh, it's it's the way sometimes that the mass in English is celebrated. I very much enjoy for for our Hispanic brothers in the class and sister, and I love when we have mass in Spanish at the seminary. Thursday is Spanish day, <laughs> and it, it's I I think it's just a beautiful engaging prayer, and it it's making me recall my studies in Spanish as well. And the hymns and the engagement and the singing of mass in Spanish is amazing. And again, that comes from the culture of people where their faith is in the in your it's in your blood. So uh, you know, it's it's wonderful that we have we can have these uh, different ways of celebrating. Thank you for that, everybody. We have up in up in Orange County, up in Middletown, we have a fairly. He was ordained about five, six years ago, a young priest. And he does, he does, you know, mass in English. He also does pre-Vatican too. And he has the same reverence. But the cool thing is I've gone to a couple of his, of his you know, pre-Vatican II masses. And it's mostly 20, 30-year-old 30 kids dressed to the nines. Yeah. So it's nice to see them in a church. But the priest that's, that says the mass both ways, he's the same priest. 
Yeah. It doesn't matter what Massey's saying. That's it's terrific. That's great. Uh, Bob, you bring up such a, a great point because I noticed the same thing, the way that people dress yeah. when they go to the Extraordinary Four Mass. It's not like they go into a Yankee game. That's right. You're absolutely right. So that's an interesting thing. And it's nice some, Yeah, but someday I'd like to really do a study on this and figure it out, mm. why, why that is, why people get dressed up to go to the Extraordinary Form. They, they wear shorts. Right. To mass in English. Someday when I have time. It's the same uh, God appears on the altar. Doesn't matter what the language is. I, I want to study it. That's that's the important thing to remember that no matter what, we are oh, we are part remember we talked about uh participation last week. Yep. Active participation at its deepest level means that we are participating in the Paschal mystery, that we enter into the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that is made present for us now. That's the important thing that we don't want to lose. And when you study liturgy, you're going to learn a whole lot more about that. I don't want to yes. look back this out, but I was thinking about what you were saying. You'd love to study it and, and, and figure out why. The thought that came to my mind is all the people, for the most part, 20s, 30s, maybe 40s, I see this um, extraordinary form of the Mass being so new, exciting, it's so different than what they were exposed to in the pews, at catechesis, and I think, I'm just guessing, but I, it makes sense to me that they're drawn to it because it's new, it's exciting, it's different, and what we're presenting them with still, not that those of us who go now and appreciate the Mass, there's a reason for that, and they haven't found that reason yet. It's just the same old, same old, and it's just not attractive to them. That That's a really very good point that I will bring to my, um, put it in, my, make sure I put it in my notes, because that, and then Victoria, I know that you're next, but that brings up a very important point of how poor our catechesis is. Because this is what happened after the Second Vatican Council. Because the Mass was in the, now in the vernacular, in people's language, the thought was, well, we don't have to explain it. They will understand it. So at the time, and for several years after, catechesis was very poor. So when we had the, um, the revision, the third edition of the Roman Missal in 2011, that there was all controversy over as well. But the idea was this is an opportunity to catechize people on um, the celebration of the mass. Um, and again, this is something that has to be ongoing. This is liturgical renewal and renewal in the church is ongoing. Remember, I, I think, I, again, I, me if I said this in my other class and not here, the reform of the church took place once and for all, all right? And it's, it's etched in the documents, but renewal continues. That's the difference between reform and renewal. And we're part of that renewal and we're responsible, as we talked about uh, last time, to bring about this uh, renewal through awareness. Thank you for that. I love that idea that it's new for them. Because it's certainly not nostalgic, because it's not anything they remember. 
like for me, I could say, oh yeah, I remember when I was five, you know, but for them, that's not the case. Victoria, hon, what did you want to say? Alrighty, so I do have one of our closest couple friends very much do reject the ordinary form. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, they're, they're young, they're like us. And um, let's say in terms of dress, like Robert said, uh, there was even a point where I was like, thank God I'm wearing a dress. He asked my friend, the girl, she, he was like, okay, like I see you have your head covering. Do you perhaps have something other than pants to wear? So I was just like, oh wow, like this is the real deal. <laughs> but um, I wanna say they're amazing. Yeah, I'm sure. Things that like we do tend to disagree on a little bit because they're like, no, you have to come to extraordinary form, especially on Sundays. They're like, no, like your mass doesn't even count or yeah. Yeah, see that's the pro that's the, the big problem. Mm -hmm. Even when it came to confession, so we went to confession with, I'm pretty sure he's a priest who only, only accepts extraordinary form. So I don't know, I don't know like what parish he belonged to. He came to their house once. Mm -hmm. He asked if I've ever touched anything in the altar, if I've ever been a lector in the altar, because he said all of those things were sins. Absolutely not. So yeah. I just like... The last time I spoke to my friend, I just told her, I'm like, at the end of the day, if this is what the Pope accepts and this is what we are going towards right now, I'm like, and let's say we're all wrong, everything's bad. I'm like, God will make good out of this bad. That's literally what I told her. Because she's like, oh, now that we can't accept, can't accept it in the mouth, we have to accept it in our, in our hands. Imagine where Jesus goes. And I'm like, you don't know. You don't know what he's doing with that. You don't know if people are stepping on that. And now Jesus is everywhere. You know, and I'm like, God will make good out of the bad. If you're so convinced that this is all bad, like, he will still make the good. Because we, we can't take that responsibility on ourselves that what we've been doing is now bad. It's getting a little bit extreme, yeah. Yeah, see that's, um, let me just say this and then maybe after the break we can continue with some conversation. This is a crisis in the church. In, in again, I'm, this is my opinion. We have we have a crisis here with this this division. Um, and um, I'm to reject the Second Vatican Council is totally inappropriate. And to reject Pope Francis is totally inappropriate. We, you know, we need to trust in the Holy Spirit's presence in our church. Our church did not carry on for over 2,000 years for no reason. And we need to trust that, you know. Um, I mean, we say it in the creed every, um, every time we pronounce, uh, it's every Sunday. You know that we believe the holy catholic church the communion of saints blah 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 etc um but anyway but you see you have first-hand experience you know uh to and to you know uh to call some of these things that are a hundred percent acceptable by canon law to call them sins that's just totally inappropriate and we're not training any priests that way they're doing their own thing with all due respect and this is what I mean, like, it, and this relates to ministry. 
for all of us. None of us are acting on our own behalf. We are acting in the name of the church as whether we're deacons, lay ecclesial ministers, whatever it is. Um, we, we teach, we, we instruct in the name of the church, not in the name of my opinion, <laughs> you know, and that's, that's the key. That's very important. And um, anyway, we could go on and on about that, but thank you for sharing that. You have firsthand experience. Yeah, I wanna say like it started probably two years ago. I think they started with the appreciation and it just, it's like, it's, it's, it's now just like, complete rejection towards the ordinary. Yeah, that's very sad. And maybe there yes, who's that? I have to say a, a quick um, note about uh, what she was just describing sounds to me more like a priest who was a member of uh, the Society of St. Pius X, who, and they completely reject. Oh, you mean uh, Pius V? No, um, no? the SSPX, okay. the SSPX, it's okay. uh, a breakaway group that only does- Oh, look, uh, yeah, I know. And yeah. um, they reject every Pope from that, after Pius X. Yeah. They reject Vatican II. They are very strict about dress and, and everything um, for the mass. It's only in the extraordinary form. Mm -hmm. um, and they are not in um, their, their uh, what's what's the term I'm blanking? They're not in line with the, the Holy See. They're not in union with the Holy yes. See. Yeah. So that's not, if you go to mass there, it's not a valid mass. That's correct. Um, but um, uh, the extraordinary form, I mean, my parish, we have it every week. Mm -hmm. um, yes, you will see, I mean, you'll see people there wearing uh, the the veils and, uh -huh. and so on. My my wife wears a veil when we go uh -huh. to the mass. Sure. Um, but you you'll see uh, women wearing dresses and people tend to dress more modestly. But yes. there's no strict rule. Right. You could go in there wearing shorts. People just don't tend to do it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, exactly. But it also well, yeah. like the people that come to the Latin mass who dress up for the mass when they would go to a. a Novus Ordo Mass, the, mm -hmm. the ordinary form, they would also dress up for it. Ex yes, uh, yes. Whereas people that tend to come into the, the ordinary Mass wearing, you know, the, as was said before, which had me cracking up, the, the like you're going to a, a Yankees game, you know, um, they're probably not going to go to the extraordinary Mass. Right, right. Uh, it just tends right. to be, um, but there, it, there, there seems to be much more of a feeling of emphasis on the sacredness of the mass mm -hmm. during the extraordinary form. And it should be there in both forms. Absolutely. Um, but absolutely. it isn't always. And that's, that's the shame because when you're yeah. when you come into the church for a extraordinary form and you'll see that even when it's just that you know the uh, an altar server is um, bringing out the the uh, the the 
the vessels and so on to, mm -hmm. to the altar, everything is done with reverence. Yes. Anytime that the priest approaches the tabernacle, everyone kneels. It just, you know, it's... Uh, people, people are generally not late and they don't leave early, I've noticed as yes. well. Yeah. They, it's very... That you, Vince, you bring up such an important point, and this is a bit of liturgical history. Um, with Pius X, if, see, this is where education is so important. If people understood that there's a continuum that started with Pius X, and if we were to look at like his encyclicals and his exhortations, etc., there's been a continuum that was finally put in motion at the Second Vatican Council. That was, those documents were not written in isolation. You know, and really we go back to Pius X and he was extraordinary, but it didn't stop with him, it continued. You know, um, and every, if you go to every Pope since him and look at their writings, they're all, they quote backwards, you know what I mean? And um, the, it, it took the Second Vatican Council to put so much, because it's no one person that, that did this in the liturgical movement, um, that um, it, it was this extraordinary effort. But Pius X is noted for being one of the forerunners of what we put in motion at the Second Vatican Council and brought to fruition. Uh, Pius XII continued so much of his work, you know? So it's a very, liturgical history um, is very, very interesting. Uh, and I think that um, it's, it's an important piece of the puzzle that's missing is good catechesis, for our for our, for all of our people in our pews in general, and education uh, for our leadership. So, wow, that was great. Thank you for that. This is what I love: uh, engagement, and it all has everything to do with this, the mission. And um, as you see, as we move through tonight, uh, Pope Francis picks up on the, that theme in the joy of the gospel and we're going to uh the second part of the class look specifically at it but um this is basically our outline for tonight we're going to look at evangelization and the new evangelization and exactly what does that mean uh for us and then mission and vision um the the broader mission of the church and then bring it to a pastoral level how do we establish a mission in a parish? And then what is our vision, uh, meaning our goals, our aims, that comes out of that? And, and I'm going to talk about it very practically uh, for you. And then, as I said, Pope Francis and mission. All right, so that, that's our plan for this evening. And I'm going to start here with um, uh, Pius VI. Um, because we're going to, we need to look at evangelization first. And um, we're going to look at this in relationship as we do everything to parish life. Because proper understanding of evangelization is extremely important for not only parish life, but for ministry, which is the goal of our course, really to understand pastoral ministry. 
And this word, evangelization, is often misunderstood among Catholics. Um, a lot of Catholic people, in my experience, think of it more as a Protestant term, you know? Um, but, um, and specific, and, and we'll get to talking about the new evangelization, but also sometimes, again, I'm speaking out of pastoral experience, um, sometimes people look at evangelization, the new evangelization, as more like fads or programs in the church. And I want to kind of dispel that and look at, and we're going to look at this term much uh, broader. So we're going back to Evangelii Nunciandi, which is a document of Paul uh, VI. And in paragraph 18, he says, for the church, evangelization means bringing the good news into all strata of humanity and through its influence, transforming humanity from within and making it new. To me, that's a really very rich statement that evangelization is for the whole world, you know, and I love that into all strata of humanity. And, you know, that through evangelization, through this bringing the good news, the gospel to, to uh, humankind, that it will transform them. Um, so, you know, we, we go back as, um, as far, well, not that it's that far back. I, I forget the year of that document, but it's easily, easy to look, you can look it up if you're interested. But, um, uh, of course, uh, Pius VI, remember, is the one who brought Second Vatican Council to its completion. Uh, it was started by John the Twenty-Third, and now um, Paul the Sixth, Saint Paul the Sixth, now um, really was uh, right on with this. Uh, this is more about evangelization, and this comes from a book, a commentary. See, I go. You see how I go from document to commentary. I always like to go to the document first, then we can see, well, what does somebody else have to say about it? This book is on your uh, bibliography, but it's a priest, Father Robert Hatter, the, par the Catholic parish. As, again, it's a very simple, easy read, uh, practical, um, uh, that I, I refer to a lot in this course. But he basically talks about evangelization as a process that fosters ongoing conversion. Excuse me one second. <coughs> I'm talking too much. <laughs> it fosters ongoing conversion. That's really important. That evangelization is an invitation to God's love. And it includes, but it's not limited to missionary activity. And here is a quote from um, Robert Hatter. He says, evangelization, and this is what I want to get at here, um, is not a separate ministry, but is central to all ministries. It is the heart, soul, and spirit creating the climate for the ministries of the word, worship, and service. So evangelization is not something that exists in isolation. Evangelization 
must be included in every um, in every ministry that we are um, that our parishes uh, have. That every ministry of the church, in other words. Uh, here's a picture of the book. <clears throat> Here he says on the preceding page 63, he says, evangelization begins with hospitality. And, and you know, hospitality, we could lose the meaning of that word, but that's very important as well. How do we treat people? How do we welcome them? You know, how do we make them feel at home in our parishes? So he says, evangelization begins with this. The welcoming community lays the groundwork for all evangelization. Without it, ministerial efforts languish, meaning that they suffer or they are weak. Um, in parish life, we've always said, at least in the diocese where I worked, in Rockville Center, our, our parish secretaries, they were the first evangelizers. We used to have workshops for them in our diocese so they would understand that because they're the people answering the telephone. And they're very often the very first contact people have. And they need to be, I mean, with all due respect, I'm glad I'm not recording this class. I hope none of you are. But anyway, we used to have a, um, I had a, a, a sister friend who was doing a talk in my parish and she called one day and the parish secretary said, saying whatever it was, uh, please hold. That was it. That's no way to answer a telephone, you know? Um, but my point here is, is that um, we, hospitality is a real important thing. And, and I just bring up that example of the parish secretary in a very deep way is, a minister uh, ministering to people and it's very important how they do that um, I hope that makes sense but I think it's extremely important now there's a Catholic approach to evangelization remember I just said that uh, in my experience uh, many Catholics misunderstand this word so we need to understand the Catholic approach um, it's different from an approach that emphasizes hearing God's word and accepting it once and for all. Um, if, in other words, um, many of our Protestant brothers and sisters look at a conversion as a one-time event, once and for all. You know, we hear God's word, we accept it, and there's this definite moment of conversion. But the Catholic approach goes beyond that, that it's ongoing, that we are called to conversion every single day, over and over and over again, we are called to it. So we don't look at it, certainly we've all had different conversion moments in our life, transformative moments in our life that we could pinpoint. But the point is we can't leave it there. We need to look at our life every day as the baptized, as disciples, and look at how every day we want to be better. We want to be more in tune with the Word of God. We want to listen to the Word of God. I mean, that's the brilliance of the Roman Catholic, the lectionary in our church, that we go back to the same readings. Here we are in Lent. We've all heard these readings 
hundreds of times, but we are different every year when we come to these Lenten readings. And Lent particularly is calling us to, to conversion, all of us. Um, so we come to the gospel of Lent, we're we're, we come different and we hear a new message. Hopefully that's, that's the goal that we come to a new, um, a new way of being every year during this uh, season of Lent. So we're, we're called to conversion over and over and over again. And this is all related to Jesus's ministry of the kingdom, his preaching of the kingdom. Um, and when you, you know, in your study of scripture, you know that all scripture scholars agree that this was a, the um, a main theme of Jesus, preach, that he preached the kingdom. And the whole idea the this relationship is that the kingdom of God is in our midst, meaning that God is with us at every single moment of our life. God is active and present with us. And I think as evangelizers, people who are, are helping, bringing people to awareness of the good news, one of the most important messages we can give people, and I think I've said this before, in fact, I know I have, is that people understand that God is active and present in their life and that God loves them and is constantly um, uh, there for them, waiting for a response. We talked about call and response. You see how we looked at things so broadly and now we're narrowing it down. But basically Jesus in his preaching of the kingdom is telling us, tell, he was telling the people in his time and he's telling us all now that my father offers his presence to all people. There's no exceptions, that, that God is reaching out to all of us. And as a church, um, we do this in various aspects of parish life. Now, let me give you an example. This is a, this is a classic book written by Maria Harris. She was a terrific religious educator, scholar, uh, pastoral minister, but this book, Fashion Me a People, Curriculum in the Church. Um, and that don't let that word curriculum throw you. She was an educator, so she used educational language, but she qualifies what she means in this book. And it's also on your bibliography. But what she's talking about is activity in the church here, okay? And she is basically, the premise of this book is that the whole parish evangelizes. And then she has this list that she goes through throughout the book of how a parish evangelizes. And first she talks about community, koinonia, uh, which means the community. Um, the community evangelizes. Uh, then she talks about prayer in the church, uh, liturgia, that's the, the Greek word that for liturgy, uh, prayer, didache, uh, teaching, and that comes from the ancient document um, of the, the tradition of the apostles that was 
found not too long ago uh, in the early part of the 20th century. The Didache document is one of the reasons why we were able to move forward with the Second Vatican Council and the early liturgical movement, because we found these early documents. But that's the teaching aspect. I like to call it the educational ministry of the church. And the church uses uh, the word catechesis. And when we have our session on catechesis, I'm gonna talk to you about, I think somebody wrote about this in their paper, but there's, there's, there's two things that go on in the educational ministry of the church. We have teaching religion, like we do in schools, right? We, we teach religion, we teach theology in high schools. We teach religion in our parochial schools. But there's also another way to phrase this, we teach people to be religious. In other words, we teach people to pray, we teach people how to have a, a Christian uh, attitude, etc. And we'll go more into detail about that. Um, then she talks about proclamation, the kerygma, the, this proclamation of the word of God. And then finally, diakonia. Uh, most of you in this class can relate to that, service. But these are all the ways that we are called to, as it said here, um, that this evangelization takes place through various aspects of parish life. And I use Maria Harris as an example. She's basically saying that the place to learn how to be Roman Catholic is in the parish. In other words, you could say this, um, that everything that goes on in your parish from mass on Sunday to the parish picnic in July. People are can learn how to be Roman Catholic through those things. That becomes an important point when we look at the rite of Christian initiation of adults um, and how the community helps people to understand our faith. And they do it through parish social events. Uh, so it's beyond the classroom, it's beyond the liturgy. And that's what she's getting at here, this curriculum in the church, this activity in the church. I, I hope that makes sense. And if you're ever looking for a light read, this is, will uh, be a classic. Uh, she wrote this book, I knew her personally. She died suddenly in I think 2005. She was a terrific speaker. Um, uh, international speaker. Uh, her husband was also uh, in this, uh, he's actually 86 years old. I know him as well. He's actually very sick um, and probably will um, not live much longer. But anyway, he, when I see him socially, um, he always says he still gets royalty checks for this book. That's such a classic it, it is. Uh, so it will live on. Um, but he actually wrote a sequel to this book. His name is Gabriel Moran. He wrote a sequel that's called Fashion, I think it's called Fashioning a People for Today. Uh, and he picks up where she left off. Uh, but anyway, I offer it to you and I, get, I think her thought here is extraordinary. Um, when I did my doctoral studies, um, several courses that I took used this book as its text. Um, so I'm, I'm extremely fond of her as well. 
So, makes sense? What the, how are we doing on time? Oh, we're pretty good. I can go a little while longer, right? And then I'll give you a break. <laughs> um, you're good. Anybody have something they want to say or add or ask about anything that has been said? I feel like I gave you a lot. It makes sense? I, I just wanted to add, uh, as far as the people that minister in, in, in the office at the parishes, Oh, yeah. It's usually people with the wrong attitude. Uh, they seem to be upset more than they're welcoming. Oh, yeah. And I wanted to say one final thing as far as the extraordinary form of the Mass. Uh-huh. When Pentecost happened, the Holy Spirit made sure that all the apostles spoke in the language of those that were visiting. There you go. And that's all I had to say about that. Well, that's great. But you see, uh, Lucas, we have to we have to work as parish ministers. Again, if we see that our uh, uh, our uh, administrative assistants, whatever we're calling them, secretaries, people who answer the phones, are not doing things appropriately, it, it's to in the nicest pastoral way possible to say to bring it to the pastor's attention and say i we have to look at this that's the expression that i would always use not they're doing this wrong that but we need to look at how our staff is answering the phone how are they relating to people you you see so you're absolutely right there but but that's a very important uh piece because how people are treated you know, um, the person who answers the phone is the face of the church for that person that day, you know, or the ear of the church, whatever. But uh, that's that's just like the greeters. When when people come into the uh, into the mass, those people greeting the the the, the, the people the, the people that are coming to to participate in the mass. Mm -hmm. They play a very important uh, role because that's the first experience that. Absolutely. I, I absolutely 100% um, agree with you there. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead, John. Jim, go ahead. It's Chris, actually. Oh, Chris. Chris, Chris you look Jim. Hey, Chris Greer. Hi. Um, yes. I, I was going to comment on, uh, just build on the office people. I, I think it's everyone in the, in, in the congregation's job to welcome and greet people they don't know and to evangelize because you know, I'm a, I'm a recovering Presbyterian, and that, you know, two things would always happen. First of all, we, not only would everyone welcome anyone they didn't see, it was cultural, they'd actually invite people, not confrontationally, right. to stand up if they were visiting or they're new and to welcome them to the church. And, you know, it was just kind of cultural that you just did that. You, right. you never let a stranger walk by you in the Presbyterian, at least in our Presbyterian church. Yeah. But um, that's what you did. So... I just, I, the evangelization, evangelization goes not only from, you know, certain roles in the church, it's all of us. Because there's this mythical they in a church that we all talk about. They should do this, they should do that. And I think the reflection should be that we are they. And Well, that's that's the whole point that, that she's making here. It's the whole church. It's, you know, there are specific aspects, but essentially... And a few slides back, I won't take the time to go back. You have the notes, but essentially, it's everybody. It's it's the responsibility of the baptized 
And again, when we get to the rite of Christian initiation of adults, we're going to see that. And it's right there in that ritual text that the first minister is the community, that the community is responsible. So you're absolutely 100% right. Uh, somebody else had something to say. Who was that? Uh, yeah, so um, oh, I, no. yeah. I agree with Chris, but before we can get to the office or to the pews, we have to have them want to make the call or want to walk through the door in the first place, right? And a light went off in my head as we were talking about this uh, extraordinary form of the mass and the young people. Think about the McCarrick damage and think about how these young priests may not want to have any association either subjectively, objectively, subconsciously with that church. Not that they're divorcing themselves from the mm -hmm. church, mm -hmm. but they don't want to be associated with that church. And I think I'm at least thinking out loud here. Maybe yeah. that's got an explanation for why the growth among the young priests, the growth among the young people, because I know I have four kids in their 20s myself. This whole church scandal was horrifying. It did great damage to the church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great damage. And maybe this is their effort to kind of recover or create a more credible version of Catholicism. I mean, it's scary and it's dangerous, but it almost, you know, you know, it's, it's almost making sense in a way, which is not good. Yeah, it certainly is interesting. See, you, uh, I'm trying to help you be all be critical thinkers, you know, um, to really try to contemplate this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, you bring up the whole idea of scandal. Well, the church, the first scandal in the church was when um, Judas betrayed Jesus. But they don't know about that. I know. See, that's the thing. They that, don't know about the heresy. Right. right. About church councils. You know. Exactly. And that, what does that go back to? Education. Education, right. So important. So important. And all of this, Dr. Eschenauer, just kind of reinforces why it's so painful for everybody right now that this on top of everything else this past year our hands have been so tied in the ability to evangelize and it's leaving a hole in our hearts that we're unable to do much of anything right now mm -hmm. it, yeah it's harder it's hot definitely harder and is a more effort on a part and i always go back to what stephen Nyer mentioned, I think, the first week of class how the priests at his oratory were calling people on the phone. I'll never forget that, Stephen. I thought that was extraordinary. Um, and I, I'll never forget it. And I'll use it as an example 20 years from now. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm going to tell you, and, and, and in a way, they almost did that. God forgive me, but they almost did that for selfish reasons because they missed the people. They, they, they were doing something terrific for the but they were getting together in whatever ways they could. Uh huh. And they were like, they were sad because they missed the people that they were ministering to. And so it kind of maybe like that's where it originated was they said, well, what can we do? Oh, we can yeah. call, you know, we can call them. But then they found in calling them, they were doing this like, um, you know, kind of like little project where they just divvied up the list of registered parishioners yeah but it became a form of ministry and it was it was a two-way street because the people were ministering back to them as members of the community so yeah no in my own parish 
um, there's two parishes um, where I near where I live that are run by the Augustine uh, the Canons Regular Augustinian Canons Regular, and so they're handling two parishes, and uh, they really did a lot through um, Facebook live stream, and one of the things that they did was um, they said mass daily. Uh, this is when churches were shut down, people couldn't go, from their chapel in the canonry, which is off limits to the people. But they said mass from this space, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And one day, uh, the pastor actually gave a tour of it. Um, so, and it was a little tiny room, uh, no bigger than the room that I'm sitting in now, which is a bedroom in the back of my house. But, um, but they actually gave a, a tour and showed relics and stuff like that. And they said, you know, this pandemic gave us time to be a little creative, <laughs> you know, almost. But that was evangelization. So, you know, things uh, became a lot harder. I think I mentioned to you that my husband, who was a choir director, he would have, um, couldn't have choir rehearsals, but he gathered his choir on Zoom meeting like this once a week, even if it was just for social contact to keep the group together. So, you know, um, and we still have to be really creative about it. But it's, it's, you're right, very right, um, uh, Paul, that it's very hard. And in many ways, um, our hands are tied. It's, uh, but something meaningful will come out of it. I, I am convinced of that. Um, let me just take you through uh, just a little bit more and then we'll take a break. Um, looking at the new evangelization, I can remember um, when in my diocese, when I was working in a parish, you know, there was a lot of talk and workshops about the new evangelization. And this is what I meant before, that in the minds of some of my pastoral colleagues at the time, they thought, oh, another program we have to do, you know? But that's not what this is at all, um, you know? Um, and that's why we need to look at it. Um, this was first, really, this expression, the new evangelization, was first used by the Latin American bishops in 1968. And it later, as I'm sure you all know, became the hallmark of John Paul II's um, papacy. Um, and the whole thing is what makes it new. You know, why we, we added this, the new evangelization. What makes it new is the approach, not the message. The message is the same, you know, um, that the kingdom of God is in our midst, and it's the spreading of the good news of that to people. So then we, we, uh, the, we see in the Second Vatican Council, Agentes, the decree on the church's missionary activity in the world. Um, we also see uh, this approach um, uh, that talks about uh, this different approach to evangelization. Um, so this is just a little bit of good background to know this isn't something that somebody in 1995 or 98 or 2000 dreamt up. You know, there, there, there's history to this. 
Um, so it's good just to always be familiar uh, and to know that. Uh, but again, I bring this up because in my pastoral experience, when it came out, there was very little explanation to those working in pastoral ministry. And it looked like an invention of somebody, you know, but that it, it couldn't be further from the truth. So it, it's the approach, uh, a different approach to evangelization. Um, so just uh, mission, uh, you know what, Look, this is a good time to take a break because mission and vision, we're going to get into a whole new uh, topic, taking the idea of evangelization, the new evangelization to a different level. So um, if anybody, unless there's a, que a pressing question, I'll give you a break. I'm sure you all want to get up and stretch a little bit. You're, you're good? Okay, so let's see. It's a uh, little after 10 after 8. What do we usually take? 10 minutes? Is that enough? 10? 15? What do you want? Tell me. What do you usually do when you're on the classes? I always forget. Half an hour. Half an hour? No way. <laughs> Five minutes. Father O'Reilly. Father O'Reilly, I know. Well, you see, yeah, okay. Uh, how about we do no later than 15 minutes? No later than 8.30. I'll see you back Go get a snack. on the church in general so that's you know it's important um it's 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 really important but we'll talk more about some of these skills that um we need to uh sharpen or develop or 
whatever. But this is very good. So let's talk a little bit about mission and vision. Uh, this is an important topic, I think. Um, as you said, and the book that I uh, told you about, the, with, I don't know where I put it, doesn't matter. Uh, this book, pa uh, The Catholic Parish. He, he says that evangelization happens in interplay of the world, family, and church. So exactly what you were saying, that it doesn't only happen in the church. It happens in our families and it happens in the world. But again, for our purposes, we're going to narrow it down and look at it in the parish. So um, Father Hatter in his book, he mentions four pillars of parish life. He talked, this isn't on your screen. This is kind of my commentary around on the screen. He, he says there's mission, there's members, there's ministry, and there's management. All right, so I'm going to repeat it again. Mission, members, ministry, and management, kind of four M's. And so we're going to focus obviously on mission as it relates to parish life. So um, again, I want to reiterate that your first bullet point, the parish exists to evangelize, okay? So for example, the sporting event, the financial committee, the parish council, in addition to liturgical and catechetical ministries, are also means to evangelize. You know, you wouldn't think of it like the finance committee. Well, it's an opportunity for evangelization there too. Uh, you know, even in those uh, kind of business type institutional settings. But um, so one of the things that's important for a parish is to have a well articulated mission statement. Now, let me ask the question, and it could be a yes or a no. Um, how many of your parishes have mission statements? Okay, I see two hands went up. Anybody? For, yes. You mean formal, mis formal statements that are, that are relayed to the parishioners? Yeah, like a parish mission statement that might be published in your bulletin. I'm going to give you an example of one, but okay. uh, it's very well articulated of what the mission of this parish is, for example. And it's usually published in the bulletin that people can see it. It's public on the website, etc. So not uh, no. some parishes have them, some don't. I saw some hands go up. I saw others that didn't. But again, I'm talking about the ideal here. All right. So. The message here is that the parish mission statement, and again, I'm going to give you an example of how you go about this. This might be something you could use for your final project if your parish doesn't have a mission statement. But the parish mission statement has its origin in the mission of Jesus Christ and the church. All right? Um, and the mission of the church certainly is the gospel. So a parish mission statement has its origin in that, the gospel. All right? 
So let, bear with me. Let's go on. So when we talk about mission statement, then there's another thing to talk about a vision statement. And a vision statement is something that flows from the mission. All right? And I think that'll make sense to you in a few slides. So a vision is reflected in, for example, here's a big example, Lumen Gentium and Gaudium et Spes. I've mentioned both of those documents. Uh, one is the dogmatic constitution on the church and the, the other one is the pastoral constitution of the church. Those two documents present us with a vision of the church based on the mission of the church, which is the gospel, okay? So, creating a mission statement. Um, and again, this is something if your parish doesn't have one, it's important to understand what it means, all right? Um, there's a definite, first of all, there's a process that it involves. You can see this up on the screen, a definite process in creating a mission statement. It's not just a random idea of a few people or an idea of one person. That's, uh, and again, I'm giving you the ideal and, uh, and I'm speaking out of experience and I'll explain the process in a moment. But this process would involve the pastoral staff. Now I know this varies in different parishes, but Remember when we talked about relational ministry, we talked about the pastor with a staff of people, experts in their field that are working with him. So creating a mission statement would involve, first of all, the pastoral staff. Then it would go to parish leadership and then the parish at large. So in, in my particular example that I'm using from a parish that I worked in, the parish staff, which was large, the pastoral staff, which was all the priests in the parish, uh, the director of faith formation, the director of liturgy, the director of music, the director of social ministry, etc. So it began there. Then from there by parish leadership, I mean, like the person who coordinated the extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion, the person who um, coordinated the lectors, those would be like parish leaders. And then it was brought to everybody in the parish. All right. Um, so basically, um, what it looked like was um, we had gotten a new pastor who was very, very much in tune with the dynamics of, of this whole idea of relational ministry. So the first thing he did was he said, we need to have a parish mission statement. So with the pastoral staff, we actually brought in a professional facilitator. And it was somebody who was um, had knowledge in how to lead the people into formulating a parish mission statement. So the first step was that she worked with us, the, the staff. Um, 
and she worked with us probably uh, two or three meetings. And she had a definite, um, uh, she, as I said, she was very professional at this and she, had, she knew the dynamics of how to break us up into groups and to talk about what are our goals, what are our aims, what do we hope to accomplish in this parish and put it in our own words. And then we would submit it to her and then she'd bring it back. And this is what you all said, okay? Then we, she had a meeting with us and these uh, people who were in some sort of leadership positions. And she did the same thing with them. She got their input. What is your input on this? Then the final part of the process was to have like a town meeting, a parish meeting where you would, it was an open invitation for parishioners to come and um, come to this meeting that we would be discussing the creation of our parish mission statement. And she had it up on a PowerPoint, for example, all of the ideas that came from the first two bullet points. And then she got input from this town meeting. Very interesting. Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about that when you actually see the mission statement we came up with. But uh, I hope that makes sense to you, that there was a process. It wasn't something that one person made up. If, if, let me use another example. If you go on our website, for example, St. Joseph's Seminary, you see we have a mission statement. I was part of a committee that worked on formulating that mission statement in 2012 when we had the merger of, of the three dioceses for the one seminary. So it, we, again, we worked through a process together to come up with that. What, what is our mission? What do we hope to accomplish here? So it was a similar process without certainly the parish at large or the student body at large. It was just this uh, committee that, so it wasn't, my point here is it just wasn't um, either the pastor of the parish that wrote it or the rector of the seminary, all right? There was input. So um, a parish mission statement, first of all, is something that's public. Like I said, it's something that's published. Like uh, our St. Joseph's Seminary mission is in the bulletin, it's in the student handbook, it's on the website, it hangs in the classrooms, etc. So it's public. In other words, we want people to see this is our mission. So in a parish, it's the same thing that you, I know in the parish where I worked, and the next slide is going to give you the, the sample. We had it uh, on the bulletin and on the website. It was there that it's the first thing people would see. This is what we're about. In other words, it provided a framework for all of our parish activities, that everything that whatever activity it was, was called to understand the mission statement and draw their vision of their particular activity or ministry that it would be drawn from the mission statement of the parish. So for example, I was the director of catechesis and sacramental preparation, and I drew up a vision statement that came out of the mission statement. 
um, it communicated, in other words, the goals. This is what we want to do to evangelize in our parish, to spread the good news, etc., to make the gospel a living reality in the parish. And ultimately, the mission statement is meant to foster healthy relationships in a parish, meaning that we're not all off doing our own thing in our, in our, um, in our areas, in our activities, that we are all have an eye on the mission of the parish at large. You see, you see what I'm getting at here? So let me show you, this is, it's public, so I use the real name of the parish, St. Agnes Cathedral Parish in Rockville Center, New York. But this was the, the our, and still is, the parish mission statement. And this grew out of the process that started with just the staff, then the leadership, then the parish at large. We, the parish of St. Agnes Cathedral, a community of believers, proclaim the presence of Christ in the world. See, you said that. Through word, sacrament, and deeds, affirming the sanctity of each person, we minister to all by committing ourselves to renewal, formation, and living the gospel. That's a short, mission statements are meant to be short, or one in the seminary is not that short. But um, right here, we, who are we? Well, St. Agnes Cathedral happens to be one of the few cathedrals that's actually a parish. So we wanted to help our people to understand that we're a parish. We're not just the cathedral of the diocese. We really wanted to uh, help them to understand that we're a parish. So we, the parish of St. Agnes Cathedral, who are we? Well, we're a community of believers, okay? And what do we do? We, what do we want to do? We proclaim the presence of Christ in the world, all right? To be not only in the church, but in the world. And how do we do it? Through word, sacrament, and deeds, right? Affirming the sanctity of each person. I mean, that is, I mean, the heart of Catholic social teaching right there, right? We minister to all by committing ourselves to renewal. I talked about how important renewal is. Pope Francis talks about it. We can't be happy with things just the way they are. We constantly want to renew. We constantly want to be better. Remember, the call to conversion, not only personal, but it can be collected. We commit ourselves to formation. We want to form all people, children, adults, young people, youth. We want to form them, okay? Um, and living the gospel. Now, this is what I wanted to say to you before. I alluded to it. Originally, the staff, through various uh, conversations and writing out certain things, we came up with this. But the staff, the pastoral staff, who were all um, formally educated people in their particular area, the last word here was by committing ourselves to renewal formation and evangelization. We chose that word. When we had it up on the PowerPoint for the town meeting, the parish, the people, the parishioners objected to the word evangelization. 
because they thought it was too Protestant. So we compromised. We brought it back. And it was clear to us that they, the word evangelization that we were using, which was a good word, the parish at large did not understand it. So we spelt it out, living the gospel. So that was, that was a very pastoral thing for us to do, that we just didn't tell them, well, no, you know, we're using this word because X, Y, and Z. We, we took their um, comments, their questions, their critiques, we took it seriously. And it was clear they didn't like the word evangelization. They weren't ready for it. All right, this was 1998. Maybe today they would be, but they weren't ready then. So we said, okay, we're gonna take it out and we're gonna, and we, this is what we came up with. So it was a matter of real, real collabor a collaborative effort um, among uh, priests, lay ministers, um, parish leadership in all areas, and then the parish at large. So, so that's um, the process. So to reiterate on that, parish a parish mission statement is reflective of a re relational approach to ministry. I mean, it was clear how this was facilitated that it was all of us in relationship to each other contributing to the form the forming this a parish mission statement in essence tells the story of who we are as a parish so when we go back to this this is telling about well who are we these of this this this, this community of believers and we just, again, I said this before, display, we displayed it everywhere, you know, so people would see it in, in every building, uh, uh, anything that was printed, uh, when we finally had a website on the website, and reflect on it often. So what we would do, uh, particularly when it was new, that every leader in the parish would bring it to a meeting and open a meeting with it, you know, and let's reflect on this and let's really, in everything that we're doing, let's be reflective of what this mission statement is saying. Let us affirm the sanctity of each person. Whoever walks through the door to come to our parish outreach, you know, and all kinds of people came, well, we need to affirm and honor them for who they are. The people who were nasty to us or whatever. No, we need to make sure that we respect and we honor who they are. So we would reflect on these kind of things. And then essentially what you want, I'm using the word educate here. We could say form, teach toward the mission. All right, so everything that we did in the parish had to be directed toward this mission. Now, let me use the example, again, of St. Joseph's Seminary. If you were to look at our mission statement on the website or in the bulletin, whatever you like, when I put together um, this, your course syllabus, for example, 
these what we call intended student learning outcomes, every single one of them reflects back to the mission. So in other words, how we did it in our school, in our seminary, we have the seminary mission statement, then each um, department, whether it's scripture, liturgy, uh, dogmatic, moral, canon law, you name it, whatever it is, um, their um, intended outcome for the department is reflective of the ministry uh, the mission statement and then each one of the professors when we do our course syllabus our outcomes have to reflect back you see so that i'm not making all this up out of my own head that i'm i'm making sure that everything that we do in this course and in other courses reflects back basically to the mission of forming people basically for ministry in the church whether ordained or not ordained does that make sense? I hope. I think so. Okay. So, um, you could teach a whole five weeks on formulating a mission statement. But what I want to do is I want to make you aware that ideally in a parish, we, it, we need to have a mission. I don't remember who said this, but somebody did. Um, some, I'll look it up at some point. But somebody said, if you don't have a mission, you die. You know, in other words, if we want our parishes to be um, um, parishes that are really evangelizing parishes that affect the lives of our people, we need to have a mission. All right. Now, we might have an unwritten mission, but it's good to have a written mission that people that it's concrete that we could point to and relate to as well. So. Um, tying this up with our text, Pope Francis is very, very uh, attuned to this idea of mission and specifically using the term missionary discipleship. So this is very tied in and flows from what we talked about last time. So in the Joy of the Gospel, uh, paragraph 19, he says, evangelization takes place in obedience to the missionary mandate of Jesus. See, Jesus had a clear mission. And you and I, that's where, what we're living out. And that's what we're proclaiming, his mission, right? And we're, we are obedient to it. Um, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So Pope Francis is picking up on this, this missionary mandate of Jesus that we need to embrace. Um, going down to paragraph 21, I just picked a uh, you. There are several others, but these are very specific using the word. He says, the gospel joy, which enlivens the community of disciples, is missionary joy. You know, such beautiful, beautiful words. Uh, paragraph 24, the church, which goes forth, is a community of missionary disciples that beautiful term and we talked we talked about that early on who take the first step
are involved and supportive who bear fruit and rejoice. We have to be happy disciples. That's how we evangelize, through our joy. You know, that's what, what did Pope Francis said? You can't have, you know, sad faces, you know? We have to have joy and that joy, people are gonna see that. Wow, look at that person, what joy, what makes them so joyful, you know? Even though they might be suffering inside, you know, but we still have that missionary zeal that beautiful um, joy that comes with being a disciple of Christ. No matter what happens, our focus is on the mission. You see, the mission of Jesus Christ. Um, paragraph 25, he says, I hope that all communities will devote the necessary effort to advancing along the path of a pastoral and missionary conversion, get the words I'm emphasizing, which cannot leave things as they are, as they presently are. I, I mentioned this before, because it's one of my favorite uh, paragraphs. Um, mere administration can no longer be enough throughout the world. Let us be permanently in a state of mission. This is extremely profound because very often in the parish environment, we get stuck. Remember, we always did it that way. You know, this works. If it's not broken, you know, leave it alone. You know, um, I once heard a statement, and again, I might be repeating myself, the opening dialogue of a workshop I went to once on pastoral issue was, if it's not broken, break it. I thought that was profound, and I never forgot it. You know, if it's not broke, break it. Make something new out of it, you know? But we, we tend to get comfortable, you know? But this is what I meant by this ongoing renewal as well. You know, we always need to look where can we personally, we do this personally, we should be doing it personally, but we do it collectively as ministers for the sake of the gospel. And Pope Francis is very emphatic here, you know, um, that we need to be constantly in this state of mission. In other words, moving on toward something better, okay? Uh, 27, he says, I dream of a missionary option. That is a missionary impulse capable of transforming everything that is so rich so that the church's customs ways of doing things times and schedules language and structures can be suitably challenged for the evangelization of today's world rather than her self-preservation that's a, a profound statement because as a church we're not just about um, keeping ourselves keep safe as a church, but we're more about uh, what we can do for other people, even if it means taking a risk, you see? Uh, but I mean, there's just, that one statement is so packed. Missionary impulse, 
that we want to transform everything, everything. Perhaps, and this is just a thought, the pandemic is an opportunity for that. Because I had a conversation with one of the priests from my parish, and we were, we were just casually saying, and I'm not involved in my parish, because my involvement is at St. Joseph's Seminary. So I just attend uh, worship there. But we were having a conversation once, and um, very casually, we said the pandemic, he said the pandemic forced us to do things differently. And he said, perhaps that was a good thing. I'll give you an example. First communions could not be celebrated during the Easter season. They were celebrated in July and August. That's a terrific thing. Why can't we do that all the time? You know, there is no rule in, in this earth, uh, church that says First Communions need to be celebrated. Some people say they have to be celebrated in May, but technically it should be the Easter season. But there's no rule that says that. It can be in July. For, and that's just a simple example, you know, of just doing things and looking at, instead of a school year model, we had to look at the whole year. Well, now the churches are opened up. We can gather X amount of people. So we're not going to have your child wait to receive their first Holy Communion till next May. That we're going to gather you now. Beautiful thing. Okay, so that's what uh, part of this is leading to. Then we're skipping down to paragraph 34. If we attempt to pull all things, put all things in a missionary key, this will also affect the way we communicate the message. You know, I often think about missionary, you know, when we talk about evangelization and the new evangelization, we can think of two things, of missionaries who go to other countries, okay, and are bringing the gospel to people that never heard of Jesus Christ, right? The new evangelization is the approach that we're trying to bring the message to Jesus Christ to people who are baptized and live in our communities or maybe even in our families. I mean, that's the whole idea behind the new evangelization. You know, we're evangelizing our teenage children, you know, in some cases. But it's the way of communicating the message. And that what I'm getting at here is I often think of missionaries that have gone to other lands where uh, talking about Jesus Christ is really such a foreign concept to them. But in the way that they present it in a very uh, pastoral, inviting, kind, loving way is what attracts people. This goes back to Stephen Morgante's um, comment before, you know, and that's what Pope Francis is getting at here, this whole idea of a missionary key will affect the way we communicate, communication, the way we communicate um, needs to be fruitful because it can the effects of the way we communicate can, have, can go one way or the other, like I was saying to Stephen Magante before you know, with uh, the woman, how she approached him. Could have gone either way. So we always want to think about that. And that really goes back
that whole idea of the dignity of every human person too. Respecting them where they're at. Somebody might not be ready to be a catechist or join a prayer group, but, uh, and, and, and um, making sure that they understand that, but the invitation is extended for when you're ready. Maybe you're not ready now, but maybe someday feel free to give me a call. Feel free to come down. You know, we're always here. So that's that way of communicating in a very pastoral sense. So there's pastoral implications for the church's mission today. And again, I'm using Pope Francis because his words I, I are the best. Evangelizers thus take on the smell of the sheep. You've heard that before. It's one of his uh, most famous lines. And the sheep are willing to hear their voice. So if we communicate with a person, you know, when we perhaps maybe have to go down to their level, in some cases, that's what he means. Take on the smell of the sheep. Be one with them. We're not he up here and they're here. When I was... Um, a, di a director of catechesis and I worked with parents in particular and I met with parents and uh, formed parents in, in faith I never wanted to give them the impression that I knew everything and they knew nothing and I would always tell them that my role was to be with them and to be one with them and help them to form their children. Not that I know everything and you know nothing. You see? Uh, that's what he's telling us. Take on the smell of the sheep. Be one of the sheep. You know? Um, and then they're going to hear your voice. You know? And on a practical level, I have to tell you that as a lay minister in the church, I went to more cocktail parties and picnics than fairs to be with with these people in this parish, that they would know that I, I, I'm a wife, I'm a mother. I'm not just that person that's standing up in front of you teaching you, that I, I, can, I can be here with you. Uh, and it was amazing that the, the trust that was gained, it was very, very fruitful. Sometimes it was painful to have to go to cocktail parties, but, and, but I did it because it was the right thing. Anyway, uh, 33, he says, pastoral ministry. That's what this whole course is about. In a missionary key, seeks to abandon the complacent attitude that says, we have always done it this way. I invite everyone to be bold and creative in the task of rethinking the goals structures, style, and methods of evangelization in their respective communities. That is my second favorite paragraph of this whole document. Um, I told you about the pastor that told us, I never want anybody to ever say we've always done it that way. That's never a reason to do something, you know, because when he would ask when he was new, well, why do you do it that way? There were some people on the staff that would say, well, we always did it that way. And he forbade those uh, 
those words. But I think what Pope Francis is getting at here is what we were talking about before, this whole idea of being on mission and having a mission statement and, and constantly reflecting on it and making sure that we're living up to it and that we, we don't just settle for the way things are, but we, we renew the mission over and over and over again. I don't mean change the mission statement. I mean, let's renew it that we are, um, if, if we were to go back to that other slide, that we would renew the whole idea with our people. We are a community of believers. They need to hear that. They need to be affirmed in that, that we do respect the dignity of everybody, that we are committed to formation, etc. And and we are, how do we do this? We do it through the, listening to the word. We do it through celebrating sacraments and we do it by the deeds that we do, how we act, you know, what we do, how we help others through service, etc. But that constantly has to be renewed in people's um, minds every once in a while. And I think that's what he's getting at there. But it's just, uh, and, and you could probably go through the joy of the gospel and find several others um, statements that um, awaken us uh, to this. Um, but uh, again, we skim the surface of what mission means. You could teach a whole course on mission, but I'm giving you in this course, it's kind of like the, if you took introduction to theology where you had a little bit of a lot of things, basically this course is giving you a little bit of a lot of things. It's kind of to whet your appetite to maybe doing a full study on, on, on missionary discipleship you know, um, for example. So, building on what we're doing in this course now, that we have a lot of broad concepts kind of under our belts now, we're going to next time look at key dimensions of Catholic parishes. In other words, to use the term of um, sociologists, and one of the books that I'll be referring to next week is actually written by a sociologist that studied congregations. And there really is a method to it. And we'll, we'll look at like context and cultures and all of that. And, and I think it's gonna be interesting to look at it because just in our own class here, we have such a diverse group. And all of, uh, if we studied everybody's congregation uh, and looked at just the, the, the cultures you know that we we have we we would really have a real mix um but um when we look at and study our our parish that's what that means studying congregations congregation is kind of a protestant word more but but the idea of it is to really let's look at our parish through a particular lens uh, and that's what we'll be looking at uh, next time. And then I just a reminder about your second integration paper. Okay. Um, we have a couple of more minutes. If anybody has a question, did everything make sense? I hope. Clarification. I was just wondering, is this how 
religious orders started by mission statements? Well, um, that's a, that's terrific. And I would venture to say that every congregation, religious order, has, they may not call it a mission statement, they might call it a, oh, I, the word just went out of my head, a, um, like a constitution. Like I know, for example, the Dominican Sisters of Amityville here on Long Island, they have a constitution. And they basically, every year, meet, prior pandemic, they would have a meeting every year, and they would relook at it and make sure and study it. They'd have week-long um, talks. Are we living up to this? You know, that there is a mission. There's the rule of St. Benedict that he, he created for his um, um, monks, you know, and constantly, are we living up to it? You know? So, um, yes, it's important, you know? Uh, what are, you know, you look at the Franciscan friars of the renewal, the CFRs, they are living according to the life of St. Francis. And that was, you know, and their, their order was founded by um, Father Benedict Rochelle, who was originally a diocesan priest. But he had an idea, he had a mission to set up, this is, this is what we're going to do, you see? So, so if you were to do a study of religious orders, you would find that they have a constitution of some sort, yeah. The missionaries of the Most Holy Eucharist. If you were to go on their website, I think it's mostholyeucharist.org, you would see they have, what are their goals? What is, their mission is to establish perpetual adoration chapels around the world, to, to reinvigorate that whole idea of real presence in the Eucharist. That's their, that's their mission, you know, as, as missionaries say so they have a constitution that they live up to and part of their constitution is that they are uh, not only dedicated to adoration and they, they put in a minimum of three hours of Eucharistic adoration a day but also that they're consecrated to the Blessed Mother as well and fiat is their signature that yes looking at God's will in all things so yeah, in my experience, the little I know, absolutely. You have to have a vision. You have to have this, where are we going? Where do we want to go? Or that statement, if you don't have a mission or a vision, you die. You're gonna be floundering, you know? And it can be the same thing just in a family. Like, you know, what, what is our goal here for each other? You know, to care for each other. And how do we do that? You know, so you can look at it that way, you know, as well. You know, you certainly have a goal in mind, a mission involved, a vision for when you have your baby and the kind of family and environment that you want him or her to be, to grow up in, and you know, and to be formed in, you know. But if we don't, that's where we have, we it leads to problems, you know. Um, so that's an excellent, excellent thought. Good. I can, I can go on and on about this, but I won't because 9.31. <laughs> but anybody else, a final thought? Well, you, you certainly can integrate this in your papers, wherever you want, your thoughts, your comments, your experience. Remember, in the integration paper, 
what I'm looking for is more integration, more reflecting on uh, when you give me your personal stories, which are great, or your pastoral stories, whatever it might be, but connect them to the texts uh, or something that we talked about in class, make the connection. All right, that makes it a true integration. It's not just random thoughts, but your thoughts are it's like, how did Pope Francis, like, for example, I could write a whole reflection paper on one paragraph and use a pastoral example of something that happened when I worked in the parish by one paragraph, you know? You don't have to do a whole analysis of, of the joy of the gospel, but you certainly, could take a few paragraphs or even one. Remember, uh, let me remind you, try to three pages. That's all I ask for. You don't have to do any more than that. You know, and that's what I mean. Take one statement and make a connection to some experience that you had, either in your life, at home, in the parish, if that's the case, ideally that would be, or or whatever you want, but to make the, but three pages is enough. I know a lot of you the first time did a lot more. Uh, certainly if you do four, I'm not gonna care about it, but I, I'm trying to help you here that it's not that taxing as well, all right? So, so I'm just looking to see that you know how to integrate, to be able to take this, for example, or this, and put it into practice. Because these are beautiful words, but if we're not living them out pastorally, we're going to have a problem. You see, Pope Francis is inviting us. Uh, he's really giving us a tall order here, uh, but it's profound. And this is what we, we really need to do. One last example. In Rockville Center, they used to have what was called um, the Pastoral Formation Institute. And it was a formation program for um, people who were, you know, volunteer, for volunteer ministers in parishes. And it was around since 1991. Really, uh, so many, I used to teach in it. A lot of people went through it. Well, after the joy of the gospel, and now with Bishop Barris, his, his deep reading of the joy of the gospel, he had this institute changed the School of Missionary Discipleship, because he felt that um, even though the mission remained the same, but he just felt the title was more reflective of what Pope Francis is calling us to do, to be missionary disciples. You know, another way of saying that is disciples making disciples. You know, that's our goal. We want people to be disciples you know, to really go out on a limb for what they believe, you know. Uh, one quick, fast story, as Father O'Reilly always used to say, to make a long story longer. <laughs> but I once went to a workshop a couple of years ago, and we were talking about, the theme was disciples making disciples. And one of the speakers used an example of a father that, came complaining about his daughter who wanted to, after she got her degree, wanted to go on mission with the Jesuits, okay? She went to a Jesuit college and she gets her degree and she tells her father, well, I'm gonna go on mission now. 
And he was like, no, 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 you're not. You're going to get a great job and make a lot of money. You know? Um, and he, his complaint was, I just wanted her to be a good Catholic woman, et cetera, et cetera. And the response of the person he was making the complaint to was, you have a disciple here. You have somebody who was formed in discipleship. You see? You see, to me, that was an extraordinary. He wasn't looking for that, you know? But that's what this young woman got out of it. Um, that, no, she was going on mission first and then coming home and getting a job. But the father was very upset by that, but he should have been really proud of her. And I think he turned around once it was really, because he went like to the parish priest and he said, I don't understand this, my daughter, blah, blah, blah. And he was then led to understand, no, she's doing what, she, she's internalizing what she was, she's called to do as a Catholic woman. Anyway, um, this is the kind of stuff you're gonna tell me about. And I look forward to, um, I really do look forward to getting your papers. So you're all set then for next week, right? We'll be in March, think about it. March, midterm already, it goes very quickly. But tonight was great. I love the example of those of you who really participated, those, some of you were very quiet. And as I reminded my seminarian class on Tuesday, I, I'm given 10 points for participation. And if, if you don't participate, you're gonna lose points. So be aware of that. I wanna hear from all of you. You all have rich experiences. I need to, I want you to not be afraid to, we're all friends here. Okay, that's good. Good, I appreciate it. That's what I want, engagement. So I, I thank you very, very much. And George, um, as we just close in prayer, I want you to uh, just know that um, we are, we certainly hold uh, your father up and we know that um, he's concerned with the things of heaven and that uh, you will be better for this and that you will have a deep understanding of um, this call to eternal life that ultimately we all have. And that's what Lent is all about, that we are preparing ourselves for the ultimate uh, being with the Lord. So um, let's uh, maybe say a Hail Mary together for George, his dad, his particularly his family at this time of loss. So in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy, Holy Mary, Mary Mother, Mother of God, God pray, pray for us sinners, now Amen. and at the hour of our Amen. death. Amen. Amen. Saint Joseph, pray for, pray us. for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless everybody. God bless Stay you. Okay, thank you. You're very Thank welcome. You. You're very welcome, George. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you. Good night. Good, good night, night, everyone. Good night. Good night.
Dr. Eschenauer. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. I was muted. Oh, that's okay. I just wanted to ask you a quick question because um, the mission statement project really piqued my interest. Um, Oh, wow. Good. So the parish that I'm, so um, I was at a, I was at a parish in New Rochelle and uh, with my pastor, he got Mm -hmm. pulled to Chappaqua and then I was transferred to Chappaqua. Oh, Um, right. I remember that. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I know for a fact that at least I haven't seen, but I'll, I'll inquire about the mission statement issue because I haven't seen a mission statement in the parish. And I think it's something that is, you know, listening to this lecture is super important um, because people need to be directed and kind of channeled. So, and I'm just thinking a lot about the pandemic and thinking about people that have not come back to the church for various reasons, thinking about, because I'm teaching fourth graders in CCD and how parents aren't engaged and if the parents aren't engaged these kids don't drive so they're not engaged and they've actually told me that which is pretty sad when you have a kid saying you know maybe it's my fault that you know i don't go to confession and i don't go to communion and i and i don't come to church um and my response was it's not your fault right right. you're not waking up in the morning saying hey uh, yeah. I got better things to do than to go to church. Yeah. So um, I think that, you know, a, you know, a, a mission statement is, is super important. And, and I think because I'm, I'm thinking ahead because I have to, because I want to be able to do something that's, you know, really important because I love this class um, that will really yeah. make it. Oh, good, good. Yeah, it'll really make a difference in the parish. Um, and I think I, what I would like to do, so I, what I'd like to do is create like a multimedia presentation where I do like PowerPoint and then maybe some either video or audio from, uh, like parish council meetings and other meetings where, you know, I present like what I think the mission statement should be and get collective input and um stuff like that because i think you know having having global input a gestalt input from everybody in the parish is going to make it you know make the mission statement even more important it's going to make it a living yeah uh, document yeah exactly so anthony um for example for the final exam which is a practicum what you would do And I think it's great. I had somebody last year that actually designed something that the parish was going to use. Um, The the idea of the practicum, and I know I haven't gone into it too much, but I know you're you're one who really thinks ahead, which I appreciate. I'm that type too. The time (laughs) to start a paper. The time to do a case, start a paper is the first night of class. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you've heard um, that said. But the practicum, the assignment is to actually write out the process of how you would do this in a parish. I want uh, the students to be able to show me that if they were, you were to go in, for example, go into your parish and and help facilitate creating a mission statement, what steps would you take? And that's what would be written out. So, for example, that you would meet with your pastor, number one. You would meet with 
whoever is next on the list. You would create a presentation that you would give to the parish council, whatever it is. Right. That That's what the assignment is going to entail. Okay. Not actually doing the things, but telling me what you would do in the parish. Yeah, so I think... I think so what yeah I, I i get it so what i what i what i'd like so what i think i'd like to do is exactly is follow the steps in the development of a mission statement how i'm going to do it who i discuss it with how it's received and yep. then what ultimately happens at the end but what i'd like to do even be above and beyond is is kind of go and and this could only be for you and you know only because right. Unfortunately, I'm type A and, um, you know, and, and it's something that because I'm going to be a deacon there, I, I want to do this, you know, for the parish because the parish, that parish is awesome and the people are great and they're really receptive. And I think, and the, and the pastor's awesome and he's also receptive. So uh -huh. he would, you know, I'm sure he'd be totally into you know, me doing this, you know, as a multimedia presentation, but I can give you just, you know, the whole outline of how I oh, do exactly, it and what I do. Yes, it. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. But, and if you were interested, I can give you the, you know, I can give you the whole multimedia part of it. Sure. So you could say, uh huh. That'd be great. So, and That'd I, and I, and I think like for, you know, writing it out, it would kind of be cool to do it like in PowerPoint because that makes it an easier outline how it's done. Mm -hmm. And it, it would be easier sure. and it would be easier for you to, you know, to like, you know, interpret it instead mm -hmm. of like a paper format, because that's, you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm open to that. That's okay. being creative. Okay. I'm definitely open. I was just trying um, the book that I mentioned, The Catholic Parish. Yeah. Hope for a Changing World by Robert Hatter, H-A-T-E-R. Uh -huh. On your bibliography. Um, his part four, chapter 10, Managing the Parish's Vision, has a section on a parish's mission statement. Okay. I think this is a good book for you to have okay. to look at, um, and it would really help you. Okay. Um, you know, to, uh, as far as process. Okay. Um, because he talks about grounding the vision. Okay. Living out the vision, uh, realizing the vision, refocusing uh, parish ministries, etc. Okay. Um, so it's it's uh, it's a book I stumbled apon. It was uh, it was written in 2004, so it's not very recent, but it is timely. Uh, very, it's very good. Okay. All right, I'll so pick that I, up I too. To try to get it. I'll yeah. get it. No problem. Great. All right. Thank you. I All appreciate right. it. All right. Thanks very Hi. much. You're very welcome. Have a good week. Okay, you too. All right, bye-bye.